Hello everyone, Marcia here. Before the episode starts, I just wanted to hop on real quick to let you all know that this episode is about critical race theory and offer a disclaimer that none of us in this conversation are critical race theorists. We are all having a conversation about four very specific tenets of critical race theory and we're breaking them down and how we see them affect our lives and the lives of others. For CUBL's statement, CUBL's official statement on critical race theory, please see our website. Thank you very much. Well, welcome everyone to a very special episode of Let's Uncomplicate This. I am your host, Marcia Lane McGee, and I'm joined by three guests today. I know, kind of got a full house here. We have our returning guest, Ogetia Calabari, Indiana Miller. Hello, ladies. How are you? Good. Hello. How are you? Doing well. <laughs> Good. And we have a new person for you all. Um, James Conway is joining us today. James, welcome to Let's Uncomplicate This for the very first time. How are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be yeah. here. Good. I'm, it's good. It's good to have you here. So James, just so that our listeners get to know you a little bit better. So we know that your name is James, <laughs> but we'd like to know a little bit about, more about you, like where you're from. Are you a cradle Catholic or a convert? And what is your favorite thing about being Catholic? All right. Well, like you said, my name is James Conway. I am from the Archdiocese of Baltimore. I am a cradle Catholic. And one of my favorite things about being Catholic is uh, my ability to express my culture in my Catholicism. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> like our other, our friend Shannon says, enculturation. She loves some enculturation. And you have it right there. I love it. So... Um, well, I want to say to our listeners that we all got a chance to visit James at his church to live out his faith and his culture. And it was kind of an amazing experience a couple of Sundays ago, wouldn't you say, ladies? Yes, it was so fun. <laughs> it was, was so great. <laughs> it was so great. So thanks again for having us, James, <laughs> at your church. So let's move well, on to this. You're always welcome to come back. Oh, we will. Oh, I, <laughs> I will be back. I don't know about these ladies, but I'll be back. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's make it annual. Yes, an annual visit to James's church. Well, he will sing for us, and it would be amazing. Well, today's topic is one that I think is good to have a group discussion about because we all have our own ideas and our thoughts and experiences with it, and even some misunderstandings. Today, we're going to be talking about critical race theory. There is very, very much to say about critical race theory, what it is, was it what it isn't, and... Sometimes people who speak so confidently about it don't know really what it is and what it isn't. And sometimes I don't even know what it is or what it isn't. If you're anything like me, you haven't, you didn't hear about it until at least probably a year ago. Like I, I wasn't aware of what critical race theory was until about a year ago and other people were bringing it up. And I was like, I have no idea what this means. Do I have to turn in my black card? And so, but it turns out that I am not the only one that does not completely understand. And as I understand more, it's really been helpful to have really good, honest and open conversations. And so that is what we are doing today. 
as we always know, we bring in, we have like super intellectual stuff. We're like, Didi, come talk to us, teach us, be our historian. Let us know what's going on. If I need somebody. And then if I need someone to like agree with me and like, like explain it to me, like I'm five, Ogechi's always here for me. And she is right here in the trenches with me. And James, I always love your insight. So this is going to, it's going to fill out this conversation. So Didi, what is critical race theory? Like, what exactly is it? I mean, that's an excellent question. Um, I, first of all, I want to say I'm not a critical race theory practitioner, nor am I crit a critical race theory specialist. When I was in graduate school, we definitely read some critical theory works. And so I have sort of an introductory level understanding of critical race theory, okay? And, and even with that, um, there's, there's still so much more to grasp and to understand about it. Cause here's the reality of, of critical theory, just period, drop the race, just critical theory. Um, critical theory is basically the study of, of social, it's like a social theory that is all about, um, critiquing the world in which we live in and trying to get beneath the surface trying to un uncover assumptions and get beyond those assumptions so that we can have a better understanding of, of why we do the things we do, okay? That's what critical theory is. So now you pull the race back in, critical race theory tries to apply the system of social thought to the issue of race. Because of the nature of critical race theory, I think every critical race a uh, practitioner will probably give you a slightly different uh, definition for what it actually is, but there seems to be some common themes. Okay, so I'm going to pull okay. out four common themes. Um, Let's hear the it. first is that racism is ordinary. Racism is an ordinary part of our everyday lived experience in this country. It is not something that is exceptional. Right. It's not okay. like there are these there are just these few racist people out there who occasionally do these really racist things. No. Critical race theory says that racism is ordinary and operative in our everyday lives. Okay. The second is the critical race theory says that there is this sort of um, hierarchy between white and black. Uh, they use a term called uh, white over color ascendancy which basically means like not only do we have a, um, a preference in our systems, and then sometimes this is an unconscious preference in our systems for white over any other person of color, but that there is, that this difference matters, the system matters, and that for people of color, the more you can move up that system, the better off you are. Um, and so then we see sort of, even in situations where people might be trying to help to advance causes that disproportionately affect people of color, we'll see that sometimes the solutions that are proposed are proposed in a way that benefit this white over black system we have in the country. Okay, so that's that's our second feature. Third feature is that race is not fixed, right? There are, there are not some like clearly objective standards that, that determine what race you are a part of. Race is something that is a product of social thought, and it's also a, a product of our own unique social relations, okay? Um, so there's fluidity in there that sometimes we don't allow for. And then a fourth tenet of critical race theory is this theory of the voice of color. 
And that is the idea that people of color tell their own stories better and indeed explain their own experiences better to a majority white audience um, than was previously believed. Like previously, previously people might defer to a, um, a white expert to explain the issues that people of color face. Um, critical race theory sort of unpacks that and problematizes that and says, no, actually it's really important for people of color to tell their own stories and, and that their own experiences will be best understood from their own voice. So that's sort of four common features within this idea of critical race theory, which is this, this idea that we can get beneath the surface on issues of race and that we have to get past assumptions if we are ever going to change the, the um, racial hierarchy and racism we have in our country. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that breakdown. Um, so we've got a few things to talk about because there's a few points that you made that I was like, yeah, racism happens in the everyday and the mundane. I know I'm a black woman, but like, then there's other things that we kind of get into that more um, thought-provoking um, concepts. So the first thing, racism is ordinary, right? We are all black people in this conversation. And we're like, yeah, we're absolutely aware that racism isn't just happening by a few people doing extraordinary things you know, to be racist and keep us down. Racism is ordinary. It is in the everyday. Um, this whole podcast, let's uncomplicate this. We talk about how racism is in every little thing that we see, understand, hear, do. Um, why, why do you think that that had to be pointed out so early on? Like, is, I, do you believe that's a, that people do believe that racism doesn't really exist in the everyday in the ordinary yes that's question three okay yes okay let's hear it um like you said we do talk a lot about microaggressions and instances of racism on a systemic and even interpersonal level and i think and this might touch on um number two or even four in that when even when white people denounced racism, it was almost always those extreme acts of violence. And only currently are we really pointing out and talking about microaggressions being racist. Those were not necessarily brought out. And so people, if you ask someone, is lynching racism? Yes. If you say, I don't hire Black people, is that racist? Yes. But there's layers to racism and it, it being ordinary means that there those occurrences are not going to be as, as extreme, just like um, abuse can have extreme levels of abuse or there could be little micro levels of abuse. The way you talk to someone, putting someone down, that psychological manipulation, that's all a part of abuse if you were to ask a therapist. It's not always going to be if someone pushes you or hits you. So I kind of think of that in the same way of how I experience racism it's not always been when someone says, I don't like you because you're black or Nigerian or whatever. It's the little, in those inconsistent ways that they treat me compared to someone else that isn't a person of color or those interactions that make me second guess my worth or value as it relates to someone else that isn't a person of color. Those are all racism 
ex those are all experiences of racism to me. And so for me, that's why I believe it's ordinary because it seeps into every part of my experience and it could be seen in every part of my experience as a black person. Thank you. James is the only man on this panel right now. And I'm sure that, I know that as a black man, like, I, I don't know if you would agree that racism is a little bit more overt when it comes to where you are and you're not, um, you're not a diminutive black man. You are, you know, like you're a big dude, yeah, no, right? And um, you're black and you're outspoken. You know, you're yeah, outspoken, um, but you have things to say. Being a, being a black man, whether outspoken or not, you know, um, one of my mentors said something and especially in the realm of being Catholic, um, I could walk into a church and you would automatically notice that I'm black. You wouldn't question, you would definitely question if I was Catholic or not, if I walked into a church, but you could not question that I was black. And that thinking hmm. automatically separates out into different types of racial connotations because it's like, I, I wouldn't walk into a church unless I was going there to praise. I wouldn't walk into a church unless I was invited. In most cases, that wasn't my church. But from a non-church perspective, yes. Every uh, In another group I'm in, we have a saying, everything is racism. When we walk down the street, when we walk, how people treat us when we walk down the street, when we walk in the stores, when we're driving our cars, um, one of the things that you used to see in movies a lot, and uh, people would joke it, but it's the truth. Uh, why did you get pulled over? Why did you get pulled over? I was driving while black. You know, um, these are all real things that I have actually experienced. And I'm just like, I can't say that the people who have done this were like innately or overtly evil people, but they are part of a system that where whether they know better or not, they are taught this is how they're supposed to function. And, and functioning so have made it very uncomfortable for people that look like us to function as we would say uh, normally. So like when you hear things, especially in this post in this post 2020 world with COVID, when people say, we want to go back to normal. When I hear normal, I hear, I hear it in the most negative sense. Because what was normal mm -hmm. before 2020? Normal yeah. before 2020 was me walking down the street and uh, getting stopped by the police in this block, turning a corner, seeing two different cops, and getting stopped by them. And you know, and those experiences could have very could have varied greatly but now it's like with this it's a spotlight on you know is this a, is this the day I'm going to lose my life because I walked home instead of catching the bus uh -huh. you know um and like I said like I said I don't think that because and it's not just because I've walked away from those experiences I don't think that the people who do it unintentionally or 
very, very intent, very like slightly intentionally are evil. I really do think that it has to do with the system. The system says that I am a threat. I'm almost six feet tall. I'm a black man. All the, all of a sudden, I am a big guy. I weigh plus three fifty. Um, if you see me coming down the street, especially in the late evening or at night. I just I I can see that I look like a threat. I can see that I look like a threat to black people. So I can imagine what I look like to people of different races. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was staying in North Carolina with my grandfather, and I was still the same size, somebody told somebody advised me not to walk down the street at night because I look like a bear. And I'm like, you know, that was from somebody who was six five. And he was sitting on his porch. And at first I thought it was a joke. And then I thought about it and I was like, as a man who I like my hair, I have a bushy beard and I have a bush on top of my hair. No, you can't automatically see my face. So, you know, um, that that can be threatening, but what it, but where where is the threat if I'm not coming at you directly? Mm-hmm. You know, even the fact that I thought even the fact that I said that it could be threatening is conditioning upon racism because I was told by my mother as a child that when they see you, you are a threat. I was told by society, by the way I'm treated, that I am a threat. Mm -hmm. So I cannot sit here and say that I don't see it, especially as a black man. But one of the things that I can say is I do not embrace what people would uh, consider to be stereotypical behavior. Like I'm not gonna go and it's stereotypical A is stereotypical B. Stereotypical A is I'm not going out of my way to prove that I'm the nice black man so that you don't have to fear me or stereotypical B where I, I play into everything that you think is going to happen. I'm. I'm talking with uh, slang and wearing my hat a certain way, extra baggy clothes and stuff like that. No, my goal is to get to my destination. If I see you along the way, if I know you, I'll speak. If not, I kind of keep it funky and keep it moving because I don't know what you're going to do because I'm a big black guy. So in order to keep my sanity and my safety, and it's something that I teach my nieces and nephews, but impress more upon my nephews because they are young black men that it's not, there's nothing wrong with walking and maybe smiling, but smiling and nodding and tipping your hat, we're not doing that. You just, I said, if you stay focused on your goal and you keep moving, you probably have, you, you have a greater chance to get where you're trying to go as opposed to you stopping and try, you know, stop and stare and look around and everything like that. There's a way to be mindful of your surroundings. And the one thing that I'm always mindful of is that people are always watching me, even when it seems like I'm alone. Yeah. I think yeah. The, the story that you told James, I think is an, an excellent um, example of the power of the voice of color, right? You relating your experiences. And I think in you relating your experiences, we get why the first main tenet is that racism is ordinary 
Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, James is relating his everyday experience of simply walking down the street and how racism impacts the way in which he is viewed by others and even the way he views himself. Racism is so ordinary that it works on all of us. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if you're black and it doesn't matter if you're white. Um, it, you know, these, these ideas are, are so embedded in, in all of the pop culture that we consume, the news that we consume, the, the works, the written works that we consume, that it works on, it works on everyone. And I think one of the reasons why critical race theory has become this big flashpoint is because people assume that critical race theory only looks at white people and only demonizes white people. Critical race theory no. is not about any individual person and it's not about any individual group. The whole point of critical theory is to understand how an entire society works. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so that, that taking it personal and that taking it on as something that you should be guilty about, I think is what's, what causes the, the flashpoint when in reality, we're all just trying to understand, we're trying to get to some better understanding so that we can make, we can make some better way. And if the only shift that that you make is the understanding that racism is ordinary, you know, we've we've gotten a lot farther than we would have otherwise. Um, so, like, you don't have to agree with everything that critical race theory says. You don't have to like with any other theory or philosophy. You don't have to take it on 100 percent. You mm -hmm. don't have to. I mean, they don't need critical race theorists don't agree with each other. The whole thing is about critique. They critique <laughs> each other. Right. They critique. And it's their a theory. Own, and right. it's theory, just and saying. it's theory. It's theory. <laughs> they critique each other. They critique the positions that they held a decade ago. Like that mm -hmm. is the entire point to continually question so that people can come to a better understanding of how the society works. Well, with critical race theory, like theory is like a really scientific term, but also it, this is social science. When you talk about racism, when you talk about people, societies, like this is all social science and everything's going to be a theory. Right. So those who have a scientific mind, it's like, this is true until you prove it false and is yet to be proven false. It's just been understood better, expanded upon and things like that. So at um, no point are we saying, oh, this is what it is. But you're right. They constantly argue with each other. And we constantly have to, we have different viewpoints too, right? <laughs> About different things and what we've seen. That's why it's really great that we're having this conversation. I mean, we're not going to have any like real housewives arguments break out on this um, <laughs> podcast episode round table, but I'm sure we will disagree. I are, you know, like, I'm sure there are going to be parts where we, we fail to understand what they mean or fail to see um, why certain things matter. So thank you, James, again, for sharing that story. We really appreciate it. So we're going to move on to the second one. Um, so the second one is that the white over color ascendancy, right? Mm -hmm. So we hear that and you're saying like, well, the way I think about it is like the closer you are to whiteness, the better, the better, yes. like quote unquote better you are. And, and we talked about this. I don't know if it was on, on air or off air. Cause I was really confused. I was like, is that like, what is the difference between white over color ascendancy and what we constantly say and know is white supremacy. Like yeah. there is there like what is um I think what um, is exactly the difference? I think white supremacy the term white supremacy makes things seem like there's a more fixed binary than there actually is. 
Okay. Whereas thinking about things as like white over color ascendancy allows you to see the different levels at which race works in the society, right? Okay. Again, the whole point of a critical theory is that we are going beneath the surface, right? So mm -hmm. very surface level, you have white, you have black, right? And white people are better. That's very surface level. That is mm -hmm. not what critical well, race theory yes. is about. Right? <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Critical race theory is about like there are all of these stages in in between. And what does it mean to move move up through the spectrum, right? Like what is it mm. what does it mean to be Asian versus what it means to be black? What does it mean to be Latina versus what it means to be black? What does it mean to be a white presenting Latina versus a uh, indigenous Latina? Like all of these various um, mm -hmm. aspects, right? We know that they're you know based upon the research done by critical race theorists, they say that there's oh, there's an overall preference for um, people who are on the wider end of the spectrum, but there's there's absolutely like a spectrum that we've created here. Yes. Where you are yes. on that spectrum matters, how you move on that spectrum matters. And that dictates the behavior, again, not just of white people. This is not something that is just only about white people. It also dictates the behavior of people of color, especially yes. the behavior of people of color towards each other. Right. Mm -hmm. As everyone yes. in the society tries to move toward that higher end of the spectrum, which is the wider end of the of the spectrum. Yes. You know, I know from my own personal experience, I grew up in California in Northern California. And most of the instances of racism that I personally experienced were not at the hands of white people. They were at the hands of uh, whiter presenting Asian people and whiter presenting yes. Latino people. Right. And yes. they were vying for their own social capital and their vote and their own social position at the expense of people who look like me, right? I'm a lighter skinned black person and I know plenty of lighter skinned black people who will who will jockey and vie for their social position at the expense of darker black people. Mm -hmm. um, so this is not again there. I think the reason why we're at the flashpoint is because when people think critical race theory, they think white equals bad. That's not what the critical race theory um, theory practitioners are talking about. They are talking about an overall system that we've created in this country that puts white on a pedestal mm -hmm. and then grades everyone against that. Yes. Yes. And when I and I hear you explain that and you explain that it's on a spectrum. It really helps me understand a little bit better about how, well, our position in relation to whiteness also can be changed and like, quote unquote, improved upon, like how with code switching, right? Mm -hmm. um, that absolutely happened. So there was this really great yearbook quote a few years ago. I don't know if you guys remember this. This Black girl graduated. Her yearbook quote was, you can achieve anything you want in life as long as you sound Caucasian on the phone. And it was the best yearbook quote I've ever read in my life. And it cracked me up, right? And all of us <laughs> knew, all the little black kids who've been told that we talk white all of our lives absolutely understand what that is. And so yes. when I think about that, and I was like, yes, because I've had doors open to me on the phone that I wouldn't have had open in person. And yes. it's not because I thought I talked, I was like, I talk like I'm from the North side of Chicago right? I went to school with a bunch of white people. I talk like my environment, right? In my environment, mm -hmm. there's a lot of whiteness, right? And yeah, there are some code switching in there too. There's a lot, I'm not gonna lie. There's a lot of code switching in there too. And when I'm on the phone, I am more likely to get, oh yeah, let's, you know, get you what you need. But in person, they're like, whoa, you know, like where, where is this? We're expecting this like 
sweet little white girl. <laughs> and now we do not have that. Um, and that, that's actually been told to me before. People have been like, I was expecting you to be white. I'm really confused. I'm like, okay. First of all, yes. that's racist. But <laughs> second of all, okay. But it's like the whitest teen is better. Like how when I when I was younger, everyone had a perm, right? Or straightener, because for black folks, a perm straightens our hair. But like everyone had a perm or the way we dress, like James, how you said even yourself, you have to make sure that you don't dress a certain way. Or, you know, you don't say a certain, certain things or um, to kind of make ourselves seem safer. And I think that's yes. kind of what that is. Like the closer we can look or present whiteness, even in all of our, like I'm a whole black woman. Like there's no way if you saw me, you were like, she is a white person. That would not be real. But there are things that I can do with the way that I dress, the way I style my hair, the, how I choose to talk, what I choose to talk about that will put me in a higher on the spectrum with the white over color ascendancy. Yes. And this actually exists a lot in um, immigrant culture. And so my, I am an immigrant and my parents were immigrants and the rest of my siblings grew up here. And I remember asking my mom why she has like an Anglo name and my dad has an Anglo name and all of us have Igbo Nigerian names. And mm -hmm. for her, it was almost like a revolutionary response to the colonial colonialism that she grew mm -hmm. up with. She was born just before Nigeria became its own independent country. And so her parents named her Angela so that to give her a chance to maybe like fit into this new reality of the influence of the British in Nigeria. And so that was a whole generation of like people that she knew. And so her and her siblings were trying to be the opposite of that and wanted to reclaim their Nigerian heritage and identity. And so all of her kids are named Nigerian names. And I didn't, I would never think of my mom as a revolutionary at all, but it was funny and something <laughs> as simple as naming your child. And it reminds me of the author, Austin Channing Brown in her book. She talks about yes. her parents naming her a very like ambiguous, you know, Austin, mm -hmm. when you first think of it as a man's, a male name. Um, and it's also a very like white presenting male mm -hmm. name. Mm -hmm. And so that she can navigate this world without the assumptions that come from just reading your name and that decision that her parents made knowing that those there's so many obstacles and to, to remove just one because of how white and it's also male it would sound would set her up a little bit better and she talks about how it has it's like you said on the phone or reading a resume it's open doors to her that maybe it wouldn't have if she had a different name um, and then Didi, when you were talking about our relationship with that kind of hierarchy in our relationship with other Black people, I remember um, considering sororities and someone basically was like, don't you bother, I'm not going to name the sorority, don't you bother with this sorority because of your skin tone and and or joking like, oh, so-and-so only dates these kinds of people. Everybody in their family since like the Harlem Renaissance has only dated people of a certain shade to kind of keep that um, lineage of lightness together, um, that long hair, uh, fair skin, all of that. And so we internalize a lot of the racism and then it plays out in this hierarchy and our interactions even with one another as people of color. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there's um, there's also an, an interesting facet of that that plays in 
um, within white populations as well. And it's sort of when you can bring in some economics to this, right? Because it's not, it's not just the psychic thing of, of like that feeling of white is better, right? But it's also like a material, there's a material aspect. So even within um, predominantly white groups, there might be um, a gradation based on your economic class, right? Um, and so there might be vying within, even within white culture over, you know, who's more elite, how you can get mm -hmm. more elite and trying to jockey for that more elite position. So, you know, it's, it's complicated. Um, and, and I think, you know, again, part of the, part of the job of a critical theorist is to try to get under the surface and break apart as many layers as possible. So we can understand, you know, how it is that a white person and a black person can apply to, for the same job with the exact same comp, um, qualifications and yet the white person might get the is more likely to get the job white over color ascendancy right no matter who that hiring right. manager is um that white the white person automatically gets that leg up just by virtue of being um and that's within our society and it it's so again this is something that's working on all of us and so, you know, based on what we consume, the music we consume, the culture we consume, the language, the literature, like it's working on all of us equally. And so a, a critical theorist would say, in order to solve the problem of race in our country, we have to deal with that narrative, that blanket narrative of, of white over color ascendancy that is, you know, all throughout our society. And that, that, that matters that we do this, that we do this in, uh, all, subconsciously, it matters. Um, and we have no. to correct it. I used to find it funny that um, people who came from different countries um, would say things like, oh, when you're saying my name, you can call me Mr. A or Mr. B. And especially if they were calling, coming from like maybe an African country or uh, someplace, someplace that wasn't uh, somewhere in Europe, and the conditioning that we have, where we'll see a name and we'll be like, mm, "I'm not going to try to sound that out," but you'll sit there and you'll sound out a Wolfenstein or Roethlisberger or something like that because it belongs to a white person. And but I can't say my, uh, one of my good friends from. Uh, high school, his name is, uh, his first name is Bernard, but his last name is Agingi. And one of the things that I personally said was, I'm going to learn your name so that you can, so that I can say your name the same way I would say, uh, we had a teacher, uh, we had a teacher, he had an Italian last name and I forgot, but everybody said his last name. And he was like, oh, you guys could just call me Mr. C. And he and we were like, no, we're going to call you whatever his last name was. But um, but when we got to Bernard, there was a, a Gigi, a Bibi, a Didi. And I'm like, no, no. His Drives name is, me crazy. His name is Agengi. The same way you can say that 15 letter, 17 letter yep. Italian last name. I can I can get you on this eight letter African last name. Right? <laughs> or Nigerian last name. Right? Uh, like but we have as a society looked at it and been like like racism is very can be very involved but it can also be very mm -hmm. lazy at times and this is just one of those times where it's increasingly lazy 
but uh, I used to say, but I don't say it anymore. Again, the conditioning that I lucked out with a name like James Conway, because on an application, it looks great. And I'd never check off the race box anyway. So you have to, if you want to know, and you're not going to be able to, you may not be able to hear it over the phone, but if you want to know, you have to call me in to see. Yeah. So, but I would, but you know, it, I shouldn't have to feel like I lucked out just because mm -hmm. my name is James Conway. My name could, my name should be mm -hmm. any, should be anything. And I should be able to walk in. And if I have the right credentials, be able to get that job or at least have people make the attempt to learn and say my name correctly. Right. Yeah. Were you about to say something? I was just going to tap dance on that point again, that this is yeah. not all about white folks. Cause I, I really feel like that needs to be said over and over again, because so many of the loudest voices that are sowing confusion and division around critical race theory do so by reducing it all to white people are bad. Right. Yes. Not what's being talked about here. What's being talked about here is how a certain way of thinking in our country plays itself out yes. across the races, right? And just because you see that phrase white over color, that doesn't mean, um, uh, oh, suddenly all the white people need to be vilified. No, we're not talking about individual no. people. We're talking about systems, right? Yes. And we have that's, we yes. created this system for ourselves in this country over our hundreds of years of existing. We've created a system that preferences white over color. And it's that system that needs to be dealt with. It's not about making this personal towards any particular person. It's about dealing with the undercurrent in our society. Yeah, or and- the, Or the overt, it's not even an undercurrent, the overt, the overt problem in our society. Yes, and how we all buy into that with that yeah. white over color ascendancy. Because even James even saying, I lucked out because I got this name right? Mm -hmm. That is buying into that. And it literally allows us to, for communities of color to downgrade or very much, very diminish our heritage and even take our names and take the things that we say, because you're saying that. And I'm just like, yes, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And it shouldn't be a lucky thing. Like your name shouldn't be like, I'm super lucky to have this name because no one knows, but it's the way that we give into that and that we can hurt people of our own culture, mm -hmm. right? How we can, we can show anti-blackness, anti-Asian, anti, you know what I mean? Uh, Anti-Latino um, aspects of our culture because of that white over color ascendancy. And I think that's really important that we are able to name that and also to realize that. And I, what I really, um, I'm glad that you said that, Didi, because I was thinking, I was like, this should allow greater reflection on what we're doing instead of focusing on what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a huge part of critical race theory because you're saying, I'm like, you know, because there, there have been times where I've allowed things to happen because I was like, this is okay. This is fine. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Or this is the way it needs to be or who I'm glad that's not me or, you know, things like that, where you have to recognize where you have advantages for your proximity to whiteness in the way that you act, what you do, what you say, how you say things, um, and how, if you allow that to continue. So I like, like, I really would like it to be a reflection on what we're doing and what we can do better as opposed to what someone else is doing and what they're not doing. Um, 
So that was the first two. So that was the first part of our conversation on critical race theory. Come right back to join us as we break down the other two points and continue this very important conversation on let's uncomplicate this.